So uh, if, if any of you have been following the, uh, the country's financial news lately, you've no doubt heard politicians on both sides of the aisle uh, decrying the steady increase in our nation's national debt, uh, especially in, in light of this COVID-19 pandemic. And as of right now, uh, just, just for the 2020 uh, fiscal year, the Congressional Budget Office predicts a, predicts a federal deficit, say that three times fast, of a staggering $1 trillion. That's just what we're going to overspend this year. That's a whole lot of zeros, you guys. And, and you know, it's funny, when I was thinking about this, we, we throw those, those words and terms around pretty easily, you know, million, billion, trillion. Uh, but if you think about it like this, every, every billion dollars is 1,000 million. Okay? And then just like there's, there's 1,000 millions in a billion, there are 1,000 billions in a trillion. And that $1,000 billion in over-budget spending is going to push the total U.S. national debt to just over $27 trillion or higher, depending on how this whole stimulus thing plays out, which means that it's a burden of roughly $206,000 per household, uh, or maybe more accurately, $79,600.08 per person. And I don't know about you, but if anybody ever comes looking for my share, I'm going to have to tell them the check is in the mail. <laughs> but you know, there's, there's a really it's a different uh, and, and more pressing kind of deficit that I really want to begin looking at today. Uh, and this is going to kind of be a theme over the next four messages, uh, and that is the deficit facing the 21st century American church. Now, I don't know if any of you guys saw this, if you keep up with it. There's a really great article out uh, now by the American Pastors Network president, a man by the name of Sam Rohrer. Uh, it's called The True Deficit, Americans with a Biblical Worldview. And this is what he says, a little bit of a long quote, but I, I think it's important to read it. He says, in recent days, many more than before have become deeply concerned about the country's national debt as the government is set to spend trillions of dollars to provide needed aid to Americans affected by the coronavirus pandemic. And yet I would suggest, he says, uh, that before budget deficits, before the deep political infightings, and before the moral crumblings of our culture, there is first a deficit in our relationship with God. He says a deficit of spiritual understanding and a deficit of how to view life and living from God's perspective. In short, he says, a deficit of a true Christian worldview. And since uh, that's what I want to look at really uh, over these next four weeks and talk about today uh, in the weeks to come is about understanding and recapturing a back-to-basics awareness of our Christian faith and really to reconnect with a classical historical worldview uh, that our Western world in general, and, and this country in particular, has somehow uh, managed to lose. And we're going to do that, and we're going to use the next psalm in our series, Psalm 104, as a launching point uh, to do that because the poetic language of Psalm 104 intentionally circles uh, our look right back to the fledgling days of God's creation of the universe uh, and to the fundamentals of our understanding of the origin and the nature of the reality that we find ourselves living in. And so, uh, if you're just joining us for the first time, we started an expository series on the, the Psalms 103 Sundays ago. And we're getting close to the end, guys. Uh, and we're going to be looking today at Psalm 104, so I hope you'll join me there. 
and follow along together. This is Psalm 104, and the psalmist writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place you had appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. For from your lofty abode you water the mountains, and the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Cause the grass to grow for the livestock, and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. And then the birds build their nests, Stork has her home in the fir trees. High mountains are for the wild goats, and the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness in its night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. Oh, Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here's the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. And when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they're dismayed. And when you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. And may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks upon the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. And let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. God, our Father, by your Holy Spirit, we ask you to open our minds that as the scriptures have been read and as your word is proclaimed, that we might be led into your truth and taught by your will, uh, and in them discover your peace for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So you might have, have already noticed that the theme of, of today's psalm is really a companion piece to Psalm 103 from last week. And they not only have a, a common theme, but they also are structured 
if you're kind of into this with the languages, and I, and I have been, uh, using a literary device called an inclusio, which just means the psalm opens and closes with the same phrase being repeated at the start and at the finish like bookends. And if you look at the original language, the, the first line of Psalm 103 and Psalm 104 is exactly the same in the Hebrew, Barak Yehovah Nefesh, so praise the Lord, my soul. But the real difference comes in between them is while Psalm 103 praises God for his redemptive work, Psalm 104 praises him for his creative work. And if you look at it carefully, with 23 of those 35 verses that I just read, recalling elements from the Genesis creation story. Because if you notice, he, he mentions the, the creation of light and of the heavens, uh, of the wind and, and of the deep, the waters covering the mountains and then receding, uh, the growth of vegetation, the creation of birds and animals, uh, the sun and the moon, and then finally human life. So what we basically have here is a poetic retelling of the creation of the world and everything in it. And if we really want to get back to the basics, you can't get any more basic than that, right? And when I say basic, I don't mean uh, like a basic, uh, watered-down, run-of-the-mill kids' version story of, of Adam and Eve. No, I'm talking about the bedrock foundation of everything that we believe and a vital pillar that supports our Christian worldview. And, and since that's the second time I've said the word worldview i want to stop and, and just briefly define what i mean because you know whether you realize it or not you have one and so does everybody that you know that may not be a good one it may not be the right one but everybody's got one uh, and in its most basic form a worldview is simply the lens through which you ultimately look at reality it's a, the set of assumptions or assertions that you've made through which you consider every choice and every decision that comes up as we attempt to answer for ourselves the big questions of life. Now, admittedly, those questions might vary from person to person. They may be different from culture to culture. But no matter how you slice it, regardless of, of who you are or where you are, all the major issues of life fit really neatly into one of four columns, one of four pillars that support yours, mine, and, and everyone else's worldview. And, and I'm not just talking about Christians. This is, this is not just for us. Uh, this is true whether you're a, a Muslim or a, a Buddhist or Hindu, atheist, you name it. And those four questions that every worldview must answer, and, and you guys, you've probably heard Dr. Ravi Zacharias talk about this. He, he talks about this a lot. Uh, but these four questions that these worldviews have to answer are, are the questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. So origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Uh, origin, where, where do I come from? The question of meaning, why am I here? From morality, how, how do I really know what's right and what's wrong? And, and then destiny, what happens to me after I die? And, and you know, the conclusions that you come to when you posit your answers to those four questions also have to be coherent. It's, it's not enough to be uh, right on one and wrong on the other three. It, it's not even enough to be right on three and wrong on one. Did, did you ever try to sit on a four-legged stool that was missing a leg? It doesn't work too good, right? So over these next four weeks, what I really would like to do is kind of sketch out the answers to those big questions with you and show you why I believe 
and why I'm convinced that the Christian worldview that I have the privilege of preaching and teaching is not only a firmly held belief of mine, but it's a worldview that's logically consistent, that's empirically testable, and that is experientially relevant to whatever issues you may be facing today as you and I seek to navigate this reality that we find ourselves living in. And really so that we can understand what it's all about and what God's plan for us could possibly be within it. And that takes me right back to our text in Psalm 104 uh, and its exposition of the creation narrative of the book of Genesis. Because, you know, you, you can't really know God or understand your place in this world until you rightly understand the origin of our creation. You know, that's really that's why the liberal left is so quick to attack uh, and to debunk the authority of Scripture and, and why a generation ago uh, we're so keen to divorce the Bible from public education because the, the Bible tells people so plainly uh, who they are and whose they are. And I'm really ashamed to admit that the church stood by and allowed that to happen. There, there have even been so-called evangelical scholars uh, that have sought to replace the doctrine of our special creation by God with Darwin's theory of evolution uh, in, in the guise of scholarly study, of course but pushing the, the idea that evolution and the Bible might be somehow compatible and that the random development of life by means of natural selection is a much better explanation of this life that we're in than the Genesis record of creation. But, you know, the truth is, if God didn't mean what he said in Genesis, then why even bother to have it in our canon of Scripture? Right? So what, why would Genesis matter at all? It wouldn't. But Genesis does matter. Because it's God's inspired revelation of the origin of every bit of matter in the universe. From space dust to sea monkeys. You guys remember sea monkeys? Yeah, that's something I, my kids will never know about that. Uh, from horseshoes to humans, right? Everything in between, you mention it. Uh, and you know, the liberal attack on it is not accidental. It's actually absolutely calculated. Because if they can collapse the creation story out from underneath of our overarching worldview, the rest of it is just going to fall like dominoes. Right? You guys know Dr. Albert Moeller, president of uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary? He, he says this, uh, the move today to push Genesis out of the realm of the historical in order to accommodate the opinion of evolution's proponents strips the first book of the Bible in all practical terms of its sacred place in the canon of Scripture. And he says, while some would argue that the scriptures are not in danger, the current conversation on this subject is leading down a path that will do irrevocable harm to our evangelical affirmation of the accuracy and authority of God's word. And he says, if Genesis is to be held in highest regard, along with the other 65 books of scripture, then we must be on guard against those who would selectively replace the doctrine of biblical creation with the popular naturalistic notions of evolution. And he kind of closes out this section by saying, enough biblical language research has been conducted on the account in Genesis to conclude without any doubt that God's narrative of six 24-hour days of creation is a record of actual history and not some metaphorical framework open to interpretation. Amen. And I would, would just add to that that the attacks on the Genesis account is an attempt to deny the glory of God that's displayed in the things that God has made. Because God's glory is exactly the point that Psalm 104 today makes. 
And, and you know, when, when the, the Darwinists seek to explain the world around us, a, a world is just teeming with life. What they're engaged in is what one commentator called a flight from glory, right? A flight from glory. They, they want to dumb everything down, reduce everything down, make it all about random chance, no thought, no purpose behind it. But you see, in stark contrast today, we see our psalmist begin by just singing of this intentional design of, of light and of the firmament in, in verses 1 through 6 which is, is what God created on the first and second days of creation. And then he moves on to the separation of land and of water. He talks about the formation of creeks and rivers, the, uh, the spread of vegetation, which is all a summary of the third day. Uh, he celebrates the, the fourth day in his song, uh, talking about God placing the, the sun and the moon in verses 24 through 30. He talks about the creatures that were created on the fifth and sixth day, and then the crowning achievement of the sixth day, which is the creation of humanity. And, and just kind of parenthetically, brothers and sisters, unless you think I'm kind of like anti-science, some backwater rube when it comes to thinking about stuff like this, the truth is the science train left the station on atheists about 70 to 80 years ago, and they're still standing on the platform trying to sell tickets. Okay? Um, I've read the Darwin's Origin of Species. I've read his Descent of Man, not just the Cliff Notes, where he identifies the cell as the basic building block of life. And that is true. But, you know, what he thought was a monumental find was only the tip of the iceberg. Because what Darwin couldn't see, because he didn't have a modern electron microscope, is that the cell is actually an incredibly complex organic machine. So it's unknown to, to Darwin, each cell is made up of about... 10 trillion atoms. And we already talked about how many 10 trillion is, right? You remember how much we said that was? All organized into highly specific, distinct, interdependent parts, all of which are needed for that cell to even exist in the first place. And when I was thinking about this, I thought the really ironic part of, of this is all of that stuff that Darwin didn't know in the 1800s, our psalmist knew back in the Bronze Age. Right? Uh, our whole psalm today is a mass uh, of particular realities custom made by God and poetically described with exquisite attention to detail pointing not to meaninglessness pointing not to meaninglessness but to the Lord our God who the psalmist said is very great who's very great who's clothed in honor and majesty uh, but you know the pro proponents of a, a random Blind, accidental existence don't want to give him the glory that's due to God. Sinners don't want to give God glory because they want to take it. That's exactly why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were dark. And claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man 
and birds and animals and creeping things. And, and wanting to take glory from our Creator for themselves is sin, guys. The same sin that our first parents committed in the garden when they, as the, as the apex of His creation, as the delight of His heart, in essence, slapped our Creator in the face. And I want you to think about it like this. You know, if you go back and read the Genesis account, when God created light, He said, it's good. Right? When God created vegetation, He said what? It's it's good, right? When he created the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, he said, it's good. When he created the, the sheep and the oxen and all the beasts of the field, he said, it's, it's good. But when he created Adam and Eve, do you know what he said? He said, it's very good. It's very good. And he didn't just make us humans and then turn us loose. He gave us meaningful work to do to, to keep the garden and, and to care for the animals. And he provided abundance for them to enjoy, just like we read in verse 14 of our psalm today, uh, he says, God, you give the, uh, the grass to grow for the livestock and, and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and, and wine to gladden Ed's heart. Right? And, and oil to make our faces shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. And why does he care about us so much? Well, the Bible tells us why he cares for us. It's because Genesis tells us God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. There was a problem. Because while Scripture teaches that we've been created in God's image, that over the years since the fall, that image has, has become kind of warped, and, and it's gotten wounded. And to tell you the truth, we've really kind of messed it up with sin, right? Uh, and our holy God can't stand to look on sin. That's why our psalmist prayed for that day, when sinners would be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more because it's a perfect picture of a perfectly restored planet back in the original condition before the fall. And thank God he had a plan for that too. A plan to send the second Adam to reclaim all that was lost with the first. And brothers and sisters, that second Adam is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 104. Our Lord Jesus and his person and work on the cross where he pulls together that whole scarlet thread of redemption that runs all the way through Scripture from the first chapters of Genesis to the last amen of Revelation and proclaiming it as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last man Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that was first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As with the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. But as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, so shall also we bear the image of the man of heaven. That majestic image of Jesus Christ before whom the Bible says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess to his glory. Which brings us right back to where we started with that inclusio that opens and closes Psalm 104 with that same beautiful phrase repeated at the start and at the finish, bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, admittedly, we don't yet see Jesus being blessed in every segment of our society on earth today, do we? Uh, very few folks really glorify him 
If you look outside, our surroundings don't much resemble heavenly realms. Because for now, we're living in what Luther called that already but not yet life of the kingdom. It's as if we've got one foot in heaven and, and one on earth until we leave this life. But brothers and sisters, one day those two are going to be in sync. One day when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom on earth, and we who belong to him will be like him because the Bible says we're going to see him as he is. We're going to see him bearing the image of God rightly and, and we'll be reigning with Christ and finding our everlasting joy, not in ourselves, not in our human accomplishments, not in any created thing in this wonderful world, but in the majesty of the God we proclaim as creator, the God we proclaim as sustainer, the God that is the originator of everything that exists from the flaming hosts of heaven to the beating hearts of every man and woman in this room inside of us. Will you give him praise today? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for the truth and the beauty of your story of creation. We ask you, Father, that you would seal it to our hearts, that you would help us to remember always your special care and attention for your people, that, Lord, even, uh, even when we turned aside from you, you had a plan to redeem us, and we thank you for that plan, Lord. We thank you for the cross and for your offer of redemption uh, in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Be with us, Father, now as we uh, go out from here, uh, and, and keep us close to that thought. Keep that uh, nudging of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts to remind us of all that you have done, for all that you have been, and for all that you're going to do for us this week. And we ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand for our closing hymn and for the Apostles' Creed. But first, let's confess together, brothers and sisters, what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen.